you walk along St. Patrick's Close in central Dublin, St. Patrick's Cathedral on your left, Kevin Street Garda Station ahead of you, you will pass a wrought iron gate. You probably don't even notice it. But if you stop, walk through those gates. Just going up the main steps to the main door here. You get to walk back in time. This is the courtyard garden of Marsh's Library, Ireland's first public library. This is something really special that people don't really expect when they come in. A real hidden gem in the centre of the city. I know that can be an overused term, but this is a gem. Of knowledge, beauty, curiosity and wonder. Open to visitors, Amy Boland, assistant librarian, is bringing us on a tour. It is, when you kind of first come in, it is a bit like... <gasps> Isn't it? <laughs> like, wow. It is incredible, isn't it? It does take my breath away. The interior of the library has remained largely unchanged since it first opened in 1707. Solid oak bookshelves stretch from floor to ceiling. The building is one of only a handful of 18th century buildings in Ireland that is still used for its original purpose. I think that's probably one of the most impactful things when you come into the library obviously these beautiful floor to ceiling bays of books stretching back more than 500 years but also that sense that you're you're experiencing the library as the first librarian Ilaboro would have experienced it himself over 300 years you know the books are in the same place Marsh's library was built by Archbishop Narcissus Marsh. So Marsh was an English clergyman who came over to Ireland in 1679 to be the provost of Trinity College. He was a very serious, very learned individual. Marsh was interested in exploring and spreading new ideas. He was one of the founding members of the Dublin Philosophical Society, sort of an early scientific body. And interestingly, I love this about Marsh, he was the first person to use the word microphone in print. He, he wrote a journal article in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, which was the world's first scientific journal, and it was on acoustics. He was um, instrumental in getting the Bible translated into Irish published and kind of understood the importance of vernacular and things like that for spreading ideas. He certainly didn't seem to think that much of Dublin when he arrived, so he thought the students were ignorant, described in his diary the city as lewd and debauched. And while he was in Trinity, the access to books was very poor at the time. So he had this plan, even when he was in Trinity, to build a public library. He didn't really have the clout at the time, but then after that, in 1694, he became the Archbishop of Dublin. And obviously with that came much greater um, clout. And he lived in uh, what's now Kevin Street Garda Station, but would have been the Archbishop's Palace at that time. And next to it, there was a spare plot of land. And he decided that that would be where he would build Ireland's first public library. He engaged William Robinson to design the library. And William Robinson also designed the Royal Hospital at Kilmainham. Marsh's library houses four main collections. The Marsh, Stealing Fleet, Boru, and John Stern, Bishop of Clogher collection. The library is important, not just in its historical significance as home to these collections, which includes some of the rarest books in the world, 
but as a centre of knowledge, a resource still used today by writers and academics. Jason McElligot, director of Marsh's Library. I suppose what we've done over the last decade with the library is we've changed from introducing it as the library of four long dead ecclesiasticals, uh, which even as a specialist in the period, when I describe it like that, I feel like falling asleep, you know. Uh, but we, we, what we've realised is that here in the in the books and the manuscripts, there's a treasure trove of, of information that you can look at in different ways. A treasure trove of information that still inspires curiosity today. The library consists of two galleries joined by a small reading room. So the the library is upstairs and then below the first gallery are uh, the librarian's apartments. So for the first few hundred years, the librarian actually lived underneath the books. The first gallery was completed in 1703 and consists of a series of bays, perfect reading alcoves, each one lined with floor-to-ceiling oak shelves, and a window that frames the tops of the trees on the grounds of St. Patrick's Cathedral, providing soft, dapple light to lose yourself in the knowledge and stories that live on these shelves. It, it, it does give you kind of a sense that you're in your own space, that the outside world doesn't really exist a little bit. You can definitely be hidden within the bays. There's also sort of these ladders that allow me to scramble up the top and to get some of the books from the highest shelves. The books are displayed on the shelves and according to their size. Largest on the bottom, stretching right up to the ceiling. So you've got some of the smaller books up at the top levels. Obviously gravity comes into play. But there is another reason why these books are kept on the top shelf. There are a number of books that might have been considered a bit controversial, so works on the occult and witchcraft and things like that, some of which were ostensibly banned and people would have been told to destroy. But, you know, Marsh was a, a scientist and a man of great learning and education, saw the value of differing opinions and saw the value of of all knowledge, refused to destroy any of these books. And so I suppose to put them out of temptation's way, a lot of them would reside high up on the shelves. The first gallery houses 10,000 books, which belong to Edward Steenfleet, Bishop of Worcester, and it was the first collection to arrive in the library. So that, that lives in the first gallery. It, it arrived at the very beginning of the 18th century and has been on these shelves since the library opened. It's an incredibly diverse collection. As a bishop, obviously, you're going to have lots of Bibles and commentaries on Bibles, but there's also a wonderful travel literature collection, including the 11-volume Blau atlases, all hand-coloured, and, and are really just sort of the pinnacle of map-making in the 17th century. And, you know, we're so incredible that they were delivered in their own carriage, you know, their gift for royalty. Amy took down one of the large blau atlases that were produced in Holland in the 1600s. So that's me taking down the bar from the shelf. And then there's a real sense of heave ho. <laughs> Look at that, there's a nice hand-coloured map. They're still really vibrant nearly 400 years later. Each hand-drawn map is rich in detail of the life of the area. Look, guys, the dogs and all the little animals. But some of them are sort of presenting all of the knowledge that we know about certain areas. So you might also have little cityscapes, famous buildings in a particular area, that kind of thing. Because these are not just about information, they're about politics. 
I think everywhere you see a bit of sea, the Dutch have put in a Dutch warship on the coast. They'll have a Dutch warship firing on an English warship. There's a sort of economics, politics and power. And that's really what this Blau Atlas is. Yeah. Even though we look at it as a, an object of beauty, yeah. you know. You walk through the library, surrounded by these beautiful century-old books that reveal a world of stories. Um, yeah, so we'll come into the old reading room here at the end of the first gallery then. And as I, this is the, uh, the, the table where we had readers sit until 2012. Where for centuries readers sat and studied. Readers such as Jonathan Swift, James Joyce... And Bram Stoker. Uh, a young 18-year-old named Abraham Stoker. He would have sat at the table that I'm sitting at now uh, and called up the books. He's interested at the time in witchcraft, astrology, history, and intriguingly, one of the books, Halen's Cosmography from 1683, is a huge tome, uh, and within it there is a specific reference to Dracula in the context of Wallachia and Transylvania. And if we were to be really cynical, we would say that this is where Bram Stoker discovered Dracula. But to be honest, I think he was just calling up books from the 17th century and he's interested in ideas of light and darkness, black and white, magic and, uh, and science. And one of the reasons why Stoker would have come to the library is that we know he was very interested in a writer named Charles Robert Maturin. Uh, who's very obscure nowadays, but in the 19th century was very well known. Maturin's greatest novel, Melmoth the Wanderer, published in 1820, and it's considered the greatest Irish uh, Gothic novel. It was a huge inspiration to people like Oscar Wilde, for example. And Maturin was famous for having written all of his books while working here in Marsh's library. He had a little portable table, uh, apparently on wheels, which he could scoot around the library uh, and plonk it beside the bays, take the books down uh, and take notes. A blue mist gathered before my eyes. It furred the edges of the lamp with a dim and hazy light. My imagination began to operate. And when I heard the curses with which my companion reproached my involuntary delay, I began almost to fear that I was following the steps of a demon who had lured me there for purposes beyond the reach of imagination to picture. I thought of being forced to witness the unnatural revels of a, a diabolical feast, of seeing the rotting flesh distributed, of drinking the dead, corrupted blood, of hearing the anthems of fiends howled in insult on that awful verge where life and eternity mingle. A gush of terror rose in my throat. I called again, but no voice answered. In situations of peril, the imagination is unhappy, fertile, and I could not help recollecting and applying a story I had once read of some travellers who attempted to explore the vaults of the Egyptian pyramids. So there's a sense in which one writer inspires another writer. That sense of 
that people for over 300 years have been taking the books off the same shelves, putting them back in the same place, that people, whether it's James Joyce and Bram Stoker, have been here sitting at the table in the reading room, or the countless people that we know have been through here and maybe their names weren't recorded. And just that feeling of, of kind of communicating across time with these people is, I think it's, it's very special. One reader who sought out inspiration from these collections is Professor Jean-Paul Pétion, fellow emeritus of Trinity College Dublin, Economic Superior Paris, specialist in Renaissance history. Jean-Paul started studying the collection in the 1960s at a time when the library was very much hidden. I'm very fond of this place. Um, I have to say that it was not always very... Um, it was a bit tough on the reader, on the one reader. <laughs> Most of the time I was here, I would, it could be quite cold. Imagine the <laughs> it's getting dark, uh, it's winter and uh, no sun. You're on your own, you're surrounded by books that belong to another generation, and you begin at times to wonder, hold on now, where am I? Where am I? Uh, it's a fun experience, yes. You get lost. Uh, the place has, has, has changed. It has improved, of course, physically. Um, uh, one has to pay homage to Muriel McCarthy for that. Muriel was a pioneer and keeper who brought new life into marshes. She was there when Jean-Paul first came to the library to begin what became a lifetime of research, bringing to light for the first time the significance of this second collection. So the second collection belonged to our first librarian, Eli Borot, and he was a French Huguenot who had to flee his native La Rochelle after the Edict of Nantes was revoked in 1685. So this meant that French Protestants faced persecution. Kind of miraculously, I suppose, for a refugee, he was able to get his books out with him. But So he has some beautiful early French printings, um, many of which are very rare. What is, after all, a collection of some over 2,000 books bought by a physician, Protestant, French Protestant physician of the mid 17th century, who was uh, a keen follower of scientific and literary news. So he bought systematically. So what you could say is that you have here a sort of cross-section of, as the French say, l'actualité, what was new in those fields in that period. And uh, I must say that now, at long last, uh, the library is on, shall we say, the academic, international academic map. Because when you would have come here in the 1960s, that wouldn't have been the case. It was kind of no. left aside. No, the library became uh, a little corner of uh, what was uh, <laughs> an island that was definitely gone and I think was a, probably a bit ignored. I think we wanted to define ourselves much more separate, uh, Gaelic, Catholic uh, and nationalist and the books didn't 
time with that idea of, of how we saw ourselves and also a lot of the way the library was set up didn't chime with that. So the board of governors and guardians was all the, the great and the good of the, the legal but also the ecclesiastical establishment in Ireland and so many of the library staff had actually joined the British army during uh, the First World War and one of them was killed at Suvla Bay so there's a, a large old key so then we open it up so when we enter into this room you can probably hear the the difference in sound the reason why i'm bringing you in here is that hidden away in the corner uh, and quite deliberately uh, hidden away is a little uh, wooden box created uh, in 1923 and on the box is is written uh, ireland's war memorial records 1914 to 1918 what we have here is a complete set of eight volumes produced in 1923 in Dublin. So during the Civil War in Dublin, uh, it's a complete list of all of those Irishmen who died in the service of the British Army in uh, the First World War from all backgrounds. Uh, and I pulled out one of the volumes. They're beautifully uh, printed. So you get the, the names in the centre in two columns, 49,000 uh, names. And then all around the, the page is this beautiful uh, engraving by Harry Clark, sort of symbolising the, the different Irishmen, their struggles, uh, and the fact that they uh, fought together. Uh, anything to do with the war, anything to do with the king, hidden away. There was a period of about... 30 or 40 years when the library itself retreated from the Irish state and really closed the doors and there's there's almost a sense in which they they, they don't quite think this independence malarkey will all work out and that you know it might go back to how things should actually be uh, and I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek but actually there was a rather uh, unfortunate incident in which after the establishment of the new state, one of the uh, trustees, who was the, the Chief Justice of Ireland, uh, wrote to the library saying that he was looking forward to coming to the regular annual meeting and they wrote back to him saying that uh, they were very sorry but under the statute of 1707 the governor was the chief justice of the kingdom of ireland and they wouldn't recognize the chief justice of what he called the irish free state so, so it wasn't just the fact that the irish nation and and the irish republic defines itself in quite narrow and, and nationalistic terms gaelic catholic and nationalist it was also that the library made a conscious decision that in the 20s and 30s to turn its back on the new state and it wasn't until 1970 that the chief justice was invited back to sit on the board of the library so there's a period of almost 50 years where the library did hold itself aloof from the state and that has been mentioned to me by uh, older people who grew up in this area that when they were growing up this library wouldn't have been for them and what they mean by that is they mean two things they mean religion so they wouldn't necessarily have felt welcome as Catholics, 
but they wouldn't necessarily have felt welcome as working class people, that there was sort of a, an air of snobbery in the mid-20th century about the library. So we've worked hard to, to change that. and To make it the welcoming place that it is today. And they continue to explore questions of identity and politics in their exhibitions. For us, it was it was quite interesting to see how people dealt with that, with those kind of complex realities in this small little uh, institution. And particularly during the Civil War. It seems to have had that uh, sense of being apart during the Civil War, that uh, the great conflict of the First World War was central to the identity of the library, even the War of Independence, because many of the staff in the, in the library would have been against independence. But when it came to Civil War, uh, the library seems to have stood aside. And became a place of refuge for readers and artists. Estella Solomons was a young Jewish woman who became active in the Republican movement and famously stored ammunition for uh, common lemon in the family vegetable patch. She took the anti-treaty side during the Civil War. Estella had been a teacher because she refused to take the oath of allegiance. She had to leave her job. So really she was thrown back on working as an artist uh, full time. And the studio that she and her partner O'Sullivan had was in what's now Pierce Street. But it was known as a safe house for the anti-treaty treaty irregulars and it was frequently raided by free state troops during the civil war so during the civil war we find her coming into the library signing the visitors book uh, and sitting here this is a place almost of refuge what she seems to have been doing is sketching uh, a number of different views from the sketches Estella produced a series of small etchings uh, they're very detailed. The second gallery, uh, it shows the, the, the bays, but also the reading desks, the original reading desks. And she's caught uh, even the grain of the, of the wood. Uh, at the time when she was working, there would have been no electric light in the library. Uh, you can see the light streaming in through the, through the windows and get that contrast between the light pouring in and falling on the books and some of the dark recesses uh, of the bookshelves. It's, it's beautiful, but you do get a sense of the, the stillness and the quietness of the place. And, um, but for us today, a century later, it's really interesting to see, uh, as we're walking through the spaces uh, today, uh, just how unchanged uh, the library is. You can sense that when you walk around Marsh's library, the refuge that Estella found, the sense of this continuous sharing of knowledge. You are experiencing it, as readers have for centuries. We are in the second gallery in Marsh's library at the moment. We have, between the bays, there are pews where people would have been able to sit and read the books. Um, they're only in the second gallery. There were pews previously in the first gallery, but they were sold off in the 1760s. And compared to the sort of majestic-looking first gallery, when you come in here, it's a little bit smaller, it's a little bit narrower, a little bit darker. The ceiling is lower, there's no vault 
vaulted ceiling and you notice that there is a, a significant temperature drop and it makes you realise why maybe people have thought that there might be a ghost or some some kind of apparition in here because it is noticeably different. There is a story of the ghost of marshes and apparently it's Narcissus Marsh himself. So his niece, Grace, she eloped in the 17th century. There is a story that she left a letter for Marsh saying that she had gone in one of the books. So his ghost roams the library looking for the letter in every book. Somebody, I think, has calculated that even if Marsh's ghost were to check every book in the library, he should have found the note by sometime in the middle of the 19th century. I have to say, having been in to check on the building while we were closed due to COVID and things like that, in these old buildings, you know, it's one of the very few 18th century buildings that's sort of still used for its original purpose. There are a lot of strange sounds, obviously old pipes, that's part of it. That's definitely what my rational part of my brain tells me. But that kind of more reptilian part of my brain definitely wonders about what these walls have absorbed or what sounds there are in the ceilings. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying there's a ghost, but I do, you know, you do wonder about like what places have seen over... 300 years, that kind of thing. The place holds all of these memories and the books themselves can open up so many other worlds. On the left, we have Marsh's own books, which were the third collection to uh, arrive in the library. And again, lots of Bibles, lots of religious works, but he definitely has his own particular slant in that he was an Orientalist. He studied Oriental languages, so there's a wonderful collection of books in Hebrew, um, in Aramaic, Coptic. Uh, and Greek, there's Arabic, Syriac, Coptic, Ethiopic, uh, Russian, Hebrew, Yiddish, and so on. Some really rare Russian language books. There are so many different languages here in the library. It's not just an Irish collection. That's kind of Marsh's collection. And then the very last collection to come in, the fourth collection, belonged to John Stern, the Bishop of Clogher. And this came in in 1745. Altogether, there's overlap, but they also, I suppose, kind of nicely complement each other. Over 20,000 books from all over the world, free to explore, but not to be loaned. At the very end of the second gallery, just as you're turning around the corner, you are kind of struck by these cages. So I'm going to open the first cage. A drastic anti-theft measurement. They were put in in the 1760s. A stock check revealed that a lot of the books had been stolen. People could either read under the steely gaze of the librarian in the reading room, or you could be locked into a cage, essentially, and left there to, to read. We found the records of audits in the 18th and 19th century, and this sounds terribly dull, but what it actually tells you over a period of about 150 years is what's disappearing off the shelves. Uh, travel books, popular science in English, slightly racy novels. The, the archbishops didn't have very racy novels in the collection, but they had slightly racy French novels. Uh, those books seem to have walked off the shelves. So there's about 1,200 books 
that go missing over uh, 150 years. One of the intriguing things that we realised was that when we come in and think that, oh, people were so different in the 18th century, look at what they read, and it's so serious. They are a representation of what was printed and what people were reading, but were missing the more popular element in, in the 18th century. And so what we're left with is a slightly distorted view of what Archbishop Marsh thought should be in a public library uh, in the early 18th century. There, there is a project at the moment looking at where copies of these books uh, might have ended up. There are books that have turned up in uh, quite famous American research libraries. And it's not the fact that they've done anything untoward. It's just they've bought a collection of books which have gone through a series of hands over two and a half centuries, uh, which initially came from, from Marsh's library. If you find a book that was in your collection, if you find it in another library, do you ask for it back? That's the that's the the conundrum. Initially, we thought, well, of course, you know, if it's our book, we want it back. But the problem with that that if you take that attitude, it destroys collaboration and cooperation between institutions. So our attitude now is that no matter what the book is, that we would much prefer that our colleagues in another research library uh, catalogue that book as having come from us rather than asking for it back because that would just destroy that, uh, that trust. Attitudes have evolved, not just in collecting, but also in terms of preservation. The kind of attitudes towards preservation and conservation have changed. So we kind of try and preserve as much of, as possible of what remains. So. Marsh's Library carry out their own preservation wow. in their Dalmas conservation bindery. There are 20,000 books upstairs. Things happen to books over a period of time. So if they get water damage, if bookworms, for example, you open a book and you find holes as a worm has gone through different pages, you can hear the crinkle crinkle is that this is somebody in the 1920s put sellotape on it to hold it together. So the conservator not only has to clean the pages and repair the pages, but has to get sellotape off 17th century paper. This is something that's going to be repaired. It's, it's a book from 1489, and as we're flicking through it here, it's basically coming apart. For us to hand a conservator something which is in flitters. It, it smells, it's dirty, it's falling apart. For them to take it apart, clean every page. I don't know about you, Amy, but the first time I saw it, I was horrified. Take the pages and put them in water and put them in a bath with a slight solution which takes off dirt. 500-year-old paper floating in a bath of water. And you think, it looks madness, but these are the old tried and tested uh, methods. Wow. Incredible. But it's slow and... You're, we're trying to kind of make sure that books are stable, but you don't really want to change them as an object. We want to preserve marks of usage, kind of not intervene too much, preserve what it's lived through. So one of the things, one of the most exciting things we found, for example, is that many of the books have ownership marks in them, uh, readership marks. So that's something that scholars are really interested in at the moment, not just the fact that these books exist, but did anyone ever actually read them? Back in the reader's room, 
Amy showed me some of those readers' marks. And it is really lovely to see drawings, doodles, little notes, poems that people write. It's it's incredible to sort of feel connected to somebody who read a book 300 years ago, 400 years ago, to see their name on the title page or to see the little doodles that they drew when their mind started to wander. It is like talking to a stranger across time, I think. So I have a sort of a few of my favourite examples. Amy took out the brief introduction to geography by William Pemble, published in 1669 kind of discusses his famous proof of the roundness of the earth and there's this wonderful illustration the round earth with a steeple sitting atop it on one side and then a boat directly across from the steeple with a line between the two and Pemble is essentially saying if you were to climb up to the top of the steeple and look out, the last thing you would see on the boat is the mast because of the roundness of the earth. And a reader decided to do their own experiment to make sure this is true. They've drawn um, a little cliffside next to the illustration where they're leaning out and they've drawn the little steeple, the same steeple that's in the illustration and the boat, and they're leaning over the cliff. I suppose they're probably looking out to make sure that the mast was the last thing they saw. And it's lovely just to see how they're possibly engaging in their own experiments and just interacting with the book in a really kind of delightful way. To feel that connection with someone over 400 years ago is incredible. The library shared images of readers' marks on social media and images of fragments, which inspired something remarkable. Quite common um, if you open a 16th or 17th century book to find pages from an earlier book or a manuscript used as the end leaves because paper was expensive, so they reused what they no longer wanted. Particularly after the dissolution of the monasteries in the 1530s, all of these manuscripts that had been in monasteries previously suddenly had very limited cultural value in um, Britain. Also loads of the books were destroyed, others were kept. So you get all these stories of cheesemongers wrapping their cheese in old manuscripts. Or- one of the great problems in libraries such as this is fashions. And, but there was a great uh, fashion in the 1920s for taking out the manuscripts from the books and compiling them into albums and they were then often sold off but thankfully they never did that here. The fragments were often musical manuscripts. There was little fragments, those little snippets of music from the medieval period which happened to have gone into these printed books and sat on the shelves safely for five, six hundred years is, is quite remarkable. During the lockdown in 2020, Sam Kavanagh, a musician and director of the La 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 Choir, spotted the fragments on Twitter. Along with medieval chance specialist Dr. Eleanor Giro and Neve Patwell, associate professor in medieval English literature, Sam transcribed these musical fragments into modern musical notations and sang them and sent the recordings back to Martius. <laughs> He never actually got to see the fragments in real life until now. How old are, we, are these pieces? So this is from probably the late 13th or early 14th, 14th century, so it's pretty old. The colours are more stark in real life than online. 
it's a old parchment with darkened edges. So the notes are uh, written in square notation. They're neumes, they're called. There are some indications of what rhythms might be possible, but it's not as clear as it might be if I was writing a brand new piece of music today, I would be expected to provide exactly how long each note should be. So the first part, for example, um, it's that could be Exultemos. You can stretch or however you want. It's um, the the music is serving the words. So when you when you're singing these fragments, how close are you to the original sound? Uh, I think the true answer is I don't know. It's not nothing set in stone that we can't be a hundred percent sure this is how it's sounded. Because the alternative is that what's written on the page is was a guideline for music that was already known. They were kind of figuring out some really tricky thing. How do you take sound and turn it into visual in a way that you don't have to explain it? Someone else can just come along when you're out of the room and pick it up where you left off. This part here, which... Um, that was written. Hundred years ago. Years ago. It really does connect you to the past, to an individual, even if you don't know who that individual is, but just this, this, as you say, like this immense skill, this level of work, this concentration that they've engaged in to be able to produce this is just it's kind of mind-boggling. There is also something with writing music that I, I just know from having done it. You kind of sing as you do it. When you're checking it, you're kind of writing and singing as you go. Mm -hmm. And it is super meditative um, in its own way. And I can easily see, imagine monks having a great time doing it. <laughs> but it's so intimate that that is done by the hand of somebody mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you're never going to get from a computer printout. Yeah. So this is mid to late 14th century, I think. It's the most fragmenty one. <laughs> if I can describe what I'm seeing, it's uh, it's like a the shape of a bookmark. So it's really small and a long rectangle. So what you're getting is the first bit of a chant on the top of the page. And then underneath it is another bit of the chant, but not the next bit. So the top line, we only have five notes, and the bottom line, we have three notes. And that's it. And we... What's interesting about this is if you look at it, it almost, the, the calligraphy, everything on it is so large, it almost mm -hmm. looks like the person zoomed in. So mm. I presume it must have been from a really big service book mm. then. And because it's so industrious having to scribe out a little booklet for everyone, Another idea is scribe out a big booklet for everyone once, and then everyone can stand around it and sing from, from a big sheet. Um, sing from the same hymn sheet. Literally sing <laughs> from the same hymn sheet, yeah. <laughs> but the top line is... 
and then there's a whole load missing. Should would then come after that, but we don't have the rest of it. Oh, oh, there's more. Oh, oh, oh tell me. <laughs> Sorry. What? What did this is the side you've seen. This is the side I've seen. I didn't know there was another side. It just occurred to me when you were when, <laughs> for the millionth time we said it's from a book, and I said I guess there's something on the other side. Ooh, but yeah, this is fascinating. So here's three more notes. Uh, and four more notes. Uh, so that was the back of it. We didn't, you didn't know there was behind uh, I guess, you know, that's the weird thing about doing it online that it just never occurred to me. Already, that was a huge part of history that completely got erased, which was maybe there's another side to this photograph <laughs> because on my computer there isn't. It's just amazing to take a fragment of a 13th or a 14th century manuscript and and be able to sing it uh, today to just bring back some sort of echo some essence of of lived reality in the medieval period these notes hidden away for centuries sam will take and breathe new life into them with his la 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 choir that is the spirit of this magical place century-old scripts that still inspire us today a sense of time um embodied into shells and bindings, a sort of uh, sense of presence of people. When you're here and working on their books, you realize that what you share with them, a curiosity, a bit of intellectual imagination. Uh, so that spirit, yes, if you like. It has, at long last, I think, the status of a very important research library that it deserves. Don't you-